I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 16. We've engaged ourselves some time ago in a study of the parables. And we considered in chapter, well actually, in Luke chapter 13, the seven kingdom parables. And then we skipped over to Luke chapter 15 and consider the parables of the lost and found, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And having concluded that, we're working our way into the 16th chapter of Luke's gospel. I invite you to follow with me as I read the first 13 verses. Now he, that is Jesus, was also saying to the disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward, and this steward was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. And the steward said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the stewardship away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I'm removed from the stewardship, they will receive me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said to him, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write write eighty. And his master praised the unrighteous steward, because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Well, what the Lord Jesus teaches here, and later in Luke 16, regarding the rich man and Lazarus, they may not be parables at all. They may be actual historical events, or actually perhaps a a mixture of the two. 
We're going to treat this as a parable with valuable lessons for us. Now, our Lord's meaning here in this parable has challenged commentators and perplexed preachers perhaps more than any other of our Lord. In fact, this is, this is recognized to be one of the most difficult portions in all of the Bible to properly understand. This parable, observes J.C. Ryle, is a difficult one. There are knots in which perhaps will never be untied until the Lord comes again. We might reasonably expect that a book written by inspiration, as the Bible is, would contain things hard to be understood. The fault lies not in the book, but in our own feeble understandings. If we learn nothing else from the passage before us, let us learn humility. Well, may we approach this parable with humility. May we be pleading with the spirit of Jesus who uttered it to illumine our hearts that we may understand its meaning and direct our feet to apply its message. Our Lord's purpose is not to hide the truth from his people, but to reveal it to those who have ears to hear. And let us pray that God would give us ears to hear. Now let us note by way of introduction the intended audience of this parable. From verse 1, we learn that they are Christ's disciples. These certainly would have included the 12 apostles and others as well. The word also in verse 1 may suggest that this parable was spoken on the same occasion as the parables of the lost and found in chapter 15. And there's another hint that this parable may have followed the parable of the prodigal son. A common word is found in both. In both parables, Jesus speaks of someone who squandered his possessions. Same word used in the parable of the prodigal as in the parable of the unfaithful steward. The Pharisees and the tax gatherers both earned well-deserved reputation for squandering their wealth. And indeed, Jesus is going to be talking about wealth throughout the rest of this chapter. Following this parable, Jesus addresses the sin of covetousness and its fearful eternal consequences. Now, brethren, we learn a lesson right up front that the way we use our resources, our finances in particular, is very telling about our spiritual condition. In fact, Jesus says that you cannot serve money and God at the same time. So how we use our finances reveals much about our hearts. Now this parable divides neatly between its exposition in the first eight verses and its application in verses 9 through 13. Now we're going to consider from the first eight verses the parable's exposition. We're going to notice four points, and then we're going to look at the parable's explanation, second part of verse 8 through 
verse 13 under three points, and then we will come to some concluding application. Notice, first of all, the parable's exposition, its meaning. And consider, first of all, the steward's mismanagement in verse 1. Now, here's the scene. Jesus presents it to us very plainly. A master, likely a landowner, entrusted his manager or steward with control of his financial affairs. His position is not unlike that of Eliezer and Abraham's household or of Joseph working under Potiphar. Both managed their master's estates and ran their businesses. And so this steward in Jesus' parable, we know that he was a free man, he wasn't a slave, because later on we're gonna find that his punishment involved termination from his position rather than beating, which would, would happen to a slave. He then would have possessed some standing and respect within the community where he served his master. But this steward proved himself untrustworthy by squandering rather than wisely managing his master's assets. Now his failure at this point anyway need not convey dishonesty. Maybe he was delinquent in his collections from his master's creditors. Maybe he made unwise investments. But whatever the case, he proved himself to be a poor manager and he was discovered. So that's the steward's mismanagement. Notice secondly in verses one and two, the master's discovery. Someone reported his mismanagement to his master, his boss, who takes immediate action. He calls his steward on the carpet. He questions him about this report. Is this true, what I have heard? And he asks him to give an account of his dealings. And since the steward here, he offers no defense, his master assumes the truth of the report. He had indeed squandered his master's money. Now, had fraud been discovered, he would have faced criminal charges. But instead of immediately putting him out on the street, his master appears to be a kind man. He gives him time to get his books in order so that he might present his final accounting and to read himself for unemployment. And during this time, the manager would likely have sought to find a suitable replacement. And so with a pink slip in hand, knowing that he will soon be out on the street, what action does the steward take? And that brings us thirdly to the steward's scheme in verses three through seven. So the steward here, he's saying, okay, I've been found out. I'm soon to be out on the street, no longer to have a job. And so what did he do? He pondered his exit strategy, as we would say today. Perhaps his laziness, if that was the cause of his squandering his master's assets, perhaps his laziness had made him soft. You see, he even says that he 
He wasn't robust enough. He didn't have the strength and health to do hard manual labor. He wasn't going to dig ditches after having doing books. And his pride prevented him from begging. He's not going to go out in the street with his hand out. No, he had a high position. He's not going to lower himself to begging. So where is he going to go? What is he going to do? How is he going to make ends meet? And as he considered these crucial questions, he arrives at an idea. A light bulb, as it were, goes on in his head. Because remember, he's a shrewd man. And so he concocts a foolproof scheme that would buy the favor of his master's debtors and provide him a place to live, indeed, maybe for the rest of his life. And since he possessed the authority to adjust his master's accounts, he would reduce all of his clients' debts, and this he did. So each debtor is called into his office. Mr. Henriksen imagines what follows. He writes, the manager then takes from a drawer, a strong box or whatever, the document which the debtor himself had drawn up and in which he had promised to pay that amount of oil here in the first case. He hands that account or promissory note to the renter and tells him to sit down and quickly to change the figure so that instead of owing 100 measures of oil, he would be owing only 50 measures. Now, why did he order the renter to sit down quickly, Hendrickson asks. Well, it could be that he was afraid the owner might suddenly enter and see what was going on, catch him red-handed. Hendrickson says, however that may be, the debtor quickly complied and handed the manager the new account with the new figure. So the manager lowered the figure owed by all of his master's debtors. Now think about this scheme, would you? By this shrewd scheme, the manager purchases the favor of his master's debtors with his master's money. And in this way, he puts his master's debtors in his debt so that he might receive room and board from them. Put them in his debt. And he doesn't have to worry about his master reneging upon his perceived benevolence because he was acting on behalf of his master. And they would have thought, well, the master is being very, un, being very kind here. He's cutting what I owe him significantly. So surely this master, he's not going to recall these former debts or he'd lose face not only with his debtors, he'd lose face with the whole community. You see the cleverness of this scheme. Notice after having seen the Steward's mismanagement, the master's discovery, and the steward's scheme, the master's commendation, the beginning 
of verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he acted shrewdly. Now this is where it can get dicey in our understanding and proper interpretation of this parable. And no small amount of ink has been spilled trying to explain exactly what happened here and how this relates to God and his relationship with his stewards, that is, his people. Now notice carefully his response. He sees at once his steward's cleverness and quick thinking in providing for himself. We must not lose sight of that. My dishonest steward is very clever. But we must not confuse the master's praise with approval of his dishonesty. You see, this steward was a crook, but what a clever one he was. We respond in the same way, don't we? When we learn how a thief masterminds an unbelievable robbery, he pulls it off and he gets away. Now, we don't admire him for his dishonesty. We're, we're repulsed by his crime. But we cannot but admire his cleverness in pulling it off. That's the way his master viewed his steward's dishonesty. Wow, I never would have thought of that. Having seen the parable's exposition, let us now look at the parable's explanation. What do these things mean? Notice, first of all, we'll consider three things. First of all, its chief message in verse 8b. Look back at the beginning of the verse. And his master praised the unrighteous steward because he had acted shrewdly for, this points back to his observation and praise of his shrewdness, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind, that is, unbelievers with unbelievers, than the sons of light. And I would say the sons of light in relationship to other sons of light and in relationship to the other people of this world. So notice the chief message. Jesus' point here may surprise us. He may seem to be praising dishonesty when he is instead actually praising shrewdness. And I believe his point is plain. Non-Christians show more shrewdness in their dealings with one another in matters that are only material and temporal than Christians do with each other in matters that are spiritual and eternal. That's the contrast. How many who call themselves Christians care not for the preservation of their never dying soul or for the spiritual and eternal welfare of others, especially of their Christian brethren. That's the larger issue here. This is how we should understand Jesus' statement. 
The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. So let us not misunderstand our Lord's point. He is not saying that cleverness demands dishonesty. He's not saying that we can ever employ shrewdness to do good, no. Jesus elsewhere teaches that we are to be shrewd as serpents, but what? Also as innocent as doves. We are to be clever like this steward without his dishonesty. He was resourceful in making preparations to persevere and to preserve his life in this world. Christians, likewise, must be resourceful in making preparations for eternity. More to the point, we must prepare for and invest in eternity now, not later. We will see that the rich man failed to do this later on at the close of this chapter. So notice, secondly, it's spiritual reinforcement, the spiritual reinforcement of the main, the chief message. From verse 9, we show ourselves shrewd in spiritual and eternal matters when we prepare for and invest in the lives of those who will soon be, as it were, cut off from this life, even as the steward was when he was called to give an account of his stewardship to his master. We, unlike the unrighteous steward, are to demonstrate impeachable moral integrity, preparing for the day when we will leave this life and meet our God and give an account of our stewardship. Again, Jesus is simply saying, use your present labors and temporal riches to promote your and others' eternal good, so that you might be with them later rejoicing in the presence of God. So he's saying, look ahead, invest in eternity. You see, how we invest our temporal riches and our God-given opportunities is a litmus test of our present spiritual condition and it forecasts our eternal destiny. This admonition applied to Jesus' original audience, to his disciples that he addressed, and to his audience that was religious and irreligious, and brethren, it applies to each one of us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In verse 10, Jesus sets forth a universal maxim. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. I mean, the meaning here is obvious. A person that is trustworthy in small matters will also be trustworthy in large matters, and the opposite is also true. If we're untrustworthy in little things, we'll be untrustworthy in greater things. 
And this principle is illustrated in this parable. He who was unrighteous in little proved to be unrighteous in much. The unrighteous steward who started out squandering ended up swindling. And here's the application. Professing Christians who are not faithful to material and temporal matters, they will prove themselves unfaithful in spiritual and eternal matters. It's a matter of faithfulness or unfaithfulness. If we're unfaithful in this, we'll be unfaithful in that. Little things, big things. Material things, spiritual things. Temporal things, eternal things. But the opposite is also blessedly true. If we're faithful in little things, we'll be faithful in big things. And this leads us to Jesus' application in verses 11 and 12. If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous mammon, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? See, our Lord is making a sober spiritual application to this principle of faithfulness in little, faithfulness in much, or unfaithfulness in little, unfaithfulness in much. You see, after, if after receiving from God a, your sacred trust, if you fail as stewards of his riches and opportunities for yourself, and for others, you will not receive what is your own. And what is your own here? He's talking about salvation. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about re being received into, into an eternal dwelling. You see, how we act in time is going to determine what happens to us in eternity. And if by the same token, if, if we are faithful with what we manage for the Lord, then we will receive unfading, the unfading riches of eternal life. This life is a test. In fact, Jesus sets the final day of reckoning before us in this parable. These are sobering words. Let us ponder them carefully. Notice finally its overarching principle in verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon, or God and money. You see, we cannot carry out this sacred stewardship and our sobering duty to make proper investments with our funds and our opportunities. We, we cannot do that, Jesus says, with a divided heart. Notice that Jesus is not saying that we must not serve two masters. He is saying that we cannot. It's absolute. 
He is speaking not of what is undesirable, he's speaking of what is impossible. Oh, we try it all the time. But it cannot be done. Jesus says it is impossible to serve God with a divided heart. Now, he's not saying everybody needs to go and sell everything and go out on the mission field. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus, if he's given you opportunities, you're to use them for his glory. Use them for the advancement of his kingdom. Use them for your spiritual and other spiritual good. It is impossible to serve God with a divided heart. And this is precisely where the steward failed. He could not serve his master's interest and serve his own. His failure proved to be his undoing. Jesus teaches that we must be single in our purpose and our purpose must be his. He must be our all in all. His will, not our will, must be supreme. It must always bow to his will. In all our duties, he must be served rather than money or the things of this world. And you see, living by this single principle, we prove ourselves to be shrewder than the sons of this age. With their divided allegiance, we have to be single in our focus. Jesus speaks about it in Matthew 6 as having a single eye. You see, the sons of this age serve self, and they serve the God of money to only receive temporal riches. We prove ourselves shrewder than they when we serve the living God with an undivided heart to secure eternal riches, both for ourselves and for others. You see, it is with this singleness of purpose that we press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, to use the language of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.14. You see, we who are saved by grace make our calling and election sure by serving our master with an undivided heart. Yet how easily we are distracted from, from this one thing needful, James warns us against being the double-minded man who is unstable in all his ways. We pursue this single purpose animated by this single principle urged on by unseen eternal reality. So Paul teaches elsewhere, we are to look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal. We're to have our focus upon eternal, unseen realities. This is how we prove ourselves more shrewd than the sons of this age. In living by a continual view of these things, we show that we are the sons of light and heirs of heaven. Now, what does this mean to us by way of concluding 
observations and applications. Christian, you are a steward responsible to faithfully serve your heavenly master with the gifts that he has given you. In all the realms of life, as a husband and a father, a wife and a mother, as parents, as employers and employees, in all of our, not just vocations, but avocations, in all that we do, we're to have this single view. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. Brethren, God has saved us to serve him. He has given us gifts and provides us with opportunities with which we are to serve him. Let us serve him by investing our gifts with several attitudes. First of all, let us serve him by investing our gifts soberly. As those who will give an account to God for how we serve him, how we have invested his gifts that he has entrusted to us for his use. Let us serve the Lord with judgment day in view. And I speak here to pastors like myself, Pastor Randy and any others that may be listening here. This is a, this is a frightful, sobering reality, is it not? Hebrews 13 and verse 17 says that every pastor is one day going to give an account to him and how he served, how he used his stewardship. It's a frightening thing. Let us as pastors serve God soberly with judgment day on the horizon. And for all Christians, he didn't speak just to the apostles. He spoke to ordinary folk. We will be rewarded according to our faithfulness. And this Jesus opens up in another parable. But we're to live with the view of the throne of God in judgment upon the skyline of our horizon. See. But we're also to serve him by investing our gifts wisely. Let us invest our master's resources prudently. We need to remember whose they are. The steward had resources that didn't belong to him. We have resources that don't belong to us. Let me ask you, what gifts has God given you? What opportunities for doing good in the master's name? Look for ways to invest the gifts God has given you. Seek to use them wisely for yours and others' maximum spiritual benefit and eternal blessing. Because the way we use time is going to influence how we enjoy eternity.
So we are to invest our gifts soberly, wisely, thirdly, presently. We are to use our God-given gifts for good in our present situation. Look for opportunities before you. Don't wait for your ship to come in, as it were, and for the golden opportunity, for God has ordered to tap you on the shoulder and say, now you can serve. No, we're to serve presently. We're to bloom where God has planted us. And I see some of you doing that to the blessing of others and the encouragement of all who watch. But we'll speak more about this in a minute. Also serve Christ by investing your gifts generously. God promises to reward faithful stewards with an abundant entrance into glory in verse nine. And how selfish we tend to be. God gives us gifts, makes us to be conduits, a blessing for other people, but we often spend these opportunities and the resources that he gives upon ourselves. Brethren, be, let us be aware of slackness or stinginess in our service. Let me ask you, what gifts do you have that you're not using? Second application, brethren, serve the Lord faithfully here and now with your present gifts and opportunities if you would seek a wider sphere of service. Some professing Christians, maybe you, think that you cannot serve the Lord in your present difficult situation or with your small gifts. Well, that's not so. Jesus, who saved you and saved me, he expects us to use whatever gifts and opportunities he has put at our disposal. Well, yeah, I want bigger things. I want a larger use of my gifts. Well, remember, you're to bloom where you're planted, and God may not repot you until you have bloomed and borne fruit in the situation where he has presently planted you. Brethren, we can't expect to be faithful in much until we've proven ourselves to be faithful in little. Those who wisely invest their talents are given more to invest. Here's what Jesus is teaching us. He says, be faithful in little things, the little things of life, and God will call you to serve him in larger things. Remember, God prepares us for future fruitfulness by our present faithfulness. Thirdly, finally, beware of foolishly attempting to serve two masters. And all of us are tempted to do that, are we not? We give much to other things, we give little to Christ How many, even among professing Christians, attempt the impossible? They attempt to serve two masters. We cannot serve Christ and serve money. We have illustrations in the Bible of this. Judas couldn't. 
He's now pierced with many a pang for his foolish attempt. We cannot serve the Lord while loving the world. And here Demas failed. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. And if we are true Christians, we have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to us. And if this describes you, if you're seeking to serve God with a divided heart, you can never truly serve the Lord. You see, if Jesus will not have all of us, he'll have none of us. He deserves and he demands all of us. He has given his all for us. Should we not give our all to him who gave himself for us? I found this to be a very convicting message in preparing and also in preaching. Speaking of persons with a divided heart, Mr. Ryle has, has observed that their affections are so chained down to earthly things that they never come up to the mark of being true Christians. And hence they live in a state of constant discomfort. They have too much religion to be happy in the world and they have too much of the world in their hearts to be happy in their religion. In short, they waste their time in laboring to do that which cannot be done. They are striving to serve God and mammon. So let me ask you, as I've asked myself, are you trying to serve Christ with a divided allegiance? What are the areas of your life that are distracting you? Well, you know what they are. I know what mine are. What are those things that are at odds with serving Christ with an undivided heart? Well, let me be more specific. Who or what has your heart? The lion's share of your attention. The thing that you live for. Is it your work? Well, certainly we're to work, we're to provide for ourselves and our family and have more to give to those who are in need, but have you made your work your God? What about on the other side of work, your avocations, your hobbies? Do you say TGIF or TGIS Sunday? Your family, you can make a God of family. You put your family before Christ. And you make family your Christ. Dear ones, we cannot serve two masters, only one. Let me ask you again, are you attempting the impossible? Because ultimately you'll fail at both. The Bible teaches us that we serve God with distinction when we serve him without distraction. This is how Jesus served his heavenly father, and this is how we must serve him. You see, Jesus is a gracious master. He's not a harsh taskmaster. And because he's a gracious master, 
Let us be his single-minded servants. He has entrusted us with eternal riches. Let us invest them that we may and others reap an eternal dividend. Jesus made this statement in last week's scripture reading, Matthew chapter 6, because this is a large principle and widely used. Jesus there speaks about the singularity of focus, fixation, you might say. He says, the lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. What is your focus? What is your fixation? But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Speak to you here if you don't know the Lord, if you're not a Christian, you're not sure that you're a Christian. If you have sincere doubts, whether you are a Christian. And I speak specifically to those who know they're not Christians. No matter how shrewd and, and successful you may be by the world's standards, your life is utterly wasted. Until you repent of your folly and quit trying to do the impossible and do the possible, which by God's grace you can do, and that is to fix your focus upon Christ, to turn from your sin to him by faith, you will be saved. But I leave you with this question. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet to lose his soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Let's pray. Our Father, you have fingered us again. And you have answered our prayer that we would hear the voice of the shepherd, I trust, each one of us. For Lord, this has relevance not to just Jesus' original audience of Pharisees and scribes and of tax collectors and sinners, those that are proudly religious and those that may be proudly irreligious. It has a message to everyone on whatever social uh, scale. Lord, we need a single focus. How our allegiance is often divided between Christ and other things. So we pray, our Father, that we would hear the voice of the shepherd speaking to us, that we would prove to be shrewd as serpents by running to Christ and to lay down our souls before him and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, that you may lift us up and occupy front and center and on all the peripheral, our focus, so that all that we do and all that we aspire to has Jesus Christ and his glory in view. Lord, make us to be that kind of people. How faltering we are, how often we fail. Give us, we pray, 
your spirit that we might make mid-course correction if we've wandered away from that one thing needful and attempting to do the impossible. Lord, show mercy to your people and also show mercy to those who are living for the world. They think they're shrewd and they're purchasing only for them a terrifying eternity and a fiery judgment which will consume the adversaries. We pray that you would save us all by the grace of Christ. For we come to you in his name. Amen.